This is a recording for the Church of the Resurrection. We are an Anglican church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Our worship includes the proclamation of God's Word, the regular celebration of the Holy Communion, and an expectation that the Holy Spirit is active in the church and our lives. Please join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Boys and Girls Club on 824 East 14th Street. Heavenly Father, I pray you would send your spirit down. Renew our hearts. Open our ears. Lord, stir in this place. That whatever language we would use, the renewing of the mind, the renewing of our hearts, they're different, but they're all the same work of the same spirit, Lord. So we pray that you would do that work. You would turn our hearts to you and open our ears to your teaching. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to tackle some tough topics. Why? If the church can't deal with difficult topics, uh, are we really going to leave those things to secular culture? Um, No, obviously not. But also, um, I preach the Bible. That's the value here, is that we preach the text, even if it's a very difficult text. I don't know if there are necessarily a lot of easy texts in the Scripture, um, unless maybe I'm preaching on tithing. I kid. Um, But uh, I have the obligation to preach the whole text of the Bible, no matter how much we have to wrestle with it. Um, So today's uh, teaching contains some teaching on sexuality. Uh, which is obviously a difficult and a loaded topic. Um, and we have our children here during the service right now. Uh, usually um, during the nine months from September to May, we have Sunday school that we offer so our kids can get an age-appropriate um, a lesson. Um, they, they worship with us. They hear the word proclaimed, um, but then they, they get an age-appropriate lesson. Um, but we also give a, a good break so that our teachers are, are well-rested during the summer. Um, So our children are here today. They're present as we tackle a difficult passage that deals with sex. So I'm just warning you, obviously there are certain topics that we should wait to broach until a certain age. I'm not going to be graphic. I'm just warning you. Um, And hopefully this this, uh, allows you to have a fruitful conversation um, with a child later. And it's always okay to be like, hey, we're not going to talk about that for a few years. Um, We're not going to talk about that um, right now. May raise questions at home, but these are questions I'd rather you answer as parents than those, answer, those questions being answered on the bus or on the playground. Amen? Amen. All right. How's that for a sermon introduction? Uh, there, there's another hazard that I'm facing today. Uh, it, it can be hazardous to tackle texts like today's from the book of Colossians, especially ones that deal with um, conduct of Christians. Because as Christians, we proclaim the gospel, God's free gift of salvation to us, God's free entry into his kingdom. And when we tackle texts like this, um, it can seem like Christianity is nothing more than a set of morality. Christianity is far more than just a, a separate moral system. The Greeks in this day, they had the world's greatest philosophers who discussed morality um, who discuss the individual's uh, place in society and, and um, how to treat one another. They ask these great questions uh, be, because uh, here's the thing about the Christian worldview is that, is that we believe that God 
um, has given uh, his revelation to all of mankind. And there, and there are certain things that are obvious um, throughout creation. And some of those is, is um, uh, morality that God has placed. It's not just Christian culture that has found morality. Um, there are other cultures that have too, because all truths are God's truth. God is the source of all knowledge. So it isn't surprising that the Greeks or the Chinese or the Native Americans or people from all over the world have discovered God's moral system. But there's something special about the revelation that we find in Scripture. Um, and that's what we uh, look at today. And so it's not surprising that unbelieving philosophers and scientists have found truth, that scientists, to contemporary scientists today who are unbelievers, find truth. And we never fear what si the truth that science finds because all truth is God's truth. That's why the church was at the forefront of scholarship. That's why the church built universities. And today we are, we are never afraid of knowledge. God is the source of all knowledge. And some unbelievers have found God's universal moral truths. Um, but we see some very specific ones today. So the caveat that we always bring to teaching about morality in scripture is that this is never uh, about us earning God's love or God's um, favor. Um, Christianity is far more than a system of morality that asks us to seek the good and avoid the bad. So when we talk about Paul's exhortations today, they're all uh, in the understanding we understand it in the context of God's gracious invitation to his kingdom. We have been saved by grace through faith. Paul wrote elsewhere, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. No one may boast. Our salvation is by the grace of God, but it's not as though God welcomes us to the family and says, best of luck to you now. Uh, you're on your own. Try your best or else. That's not how God operates. He didn't say, I'll be judging you at the end. So while you get in the front door for free, there are trap doors throughout the house. That's not how God works. The part of our life, uh, the term we have for that, the part of our life following our conversion, we, we call our sanctification. So we say that we're saved by grace, not through faith. Or by, we're saved by grace, not, not through works. But then we don't say that we're sanctified by works. We are also sanctified by grace. So that is, that is the, the mindset that we bring to today's text, is that this is the work of God as well. Before we jump to the text, would you look at the collect of the day with me? That is found on page six. The collect of the day is a prayer that we pray together. It, it, it binds the readings together. It sets the tone for the day. There's a theme that, that all these readings are attached. Uh, the four readings of scripture are attached. Um, if, you, if you notice the common thread and we see it. Um, so we see a theme of, of understanding God's providence and God provides everything. And if we trust in our own riches and wealth and our own earning that, that we are trusting in the wrong thing. Um, but uh, the colic today actually... Um, highlights a second theme and one that I'll be um, preaching on this morning. So on page six, you see it. It says, Almighty and merciful God, it is only by your grace that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. So it's an acknowledgement of, of the state that we come to the Lord in. And then we have uh, what, what it is that we're asking um, God for. We say, uh, the petition is, 
grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we acknowledge that, that, that all this is through the work of God. God, grant us that grace. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. This is the manner that we approach the list of virtues and vices, uh, virtues to seek and vices to avoid. So let's turn to the reading from Colossians on page 9 in your bulletins. Let's take a look at it. I'll start with just the first verse. Paul writes, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So we're asked to put to death what is earthly. Now, a, it would be easy to read this passage and to look, a, a big error that we can make is to look at earthly things and say all those things are bad. Uh, this summer I've spent a fair amount of time talking about our witness to the world, that we as a, as a church, um, there's certain things that we are seeking to call the greater Christian world back to biblical um, teaching on certain things. And there's, uh, there are certain parts of Christianity that see um, now and in the past that have seen any sort of earthly pleasures, any earthly things as being bad. They would read this and say, put to death what is earthly. Ah, we should not taste good food. We should not enjoy things of the flesh. Um, but this is, in fact, not what the, what the Bible teaches. Um, the Bible teaches good things about the flesh. Um, that God created the earth and he called it good. That God created sexuality. Um, that, that, that God could have made uh, procreation a mundane thing, and he did not. And... Um, uh, the, the, the things that are earthly, we are going to, after this service, we are going to enjoy good food together. We're going to enjoy good, we're going to enjoy drink together, and we are going to enjoy fellowship together. And all those things are tangible and earthly, and those are good. So um, these are good gifts from God. And, and we don't want to look at physical things as evil and invisible, and spiritual things, invisible things as good. So that's one thing that we want to push back against. It's not a prevalent belief, but there, there, there's a certain sense of like, oh, it'll be so great when we can just go to heaven and be rid of um, these bodies which test us with, with all these earthly passions. And as you take a look at the initial list of vices that Paul says to put away, we see sexual immorality is the first one. But sex is something that God gave us and is good within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Sex is good, and yet there's been a purity culture that has arisen that was dominant. Uh, I don't know, I don't have a sense of where that place, where that is today. But when I went to college around the turn of the century, purity culture was all the rage. There is a man by the name of Joshua Harris who was in the news just this week um, for actually um, announcing his divorce and his departure uh, from Christianity as a believer. Um, which is really sad. He did great damage to, to the faith before he exited. Um, but uh, around the turn of the century, his teaching was very prevalent. He wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And he was on the forefront of this purity culture, this idea that um, uh, what he taught is that, that dating is wrong. Because dating leads to intimacy, and intimacy leads to sexual intimacy, which is immoral outside of marriage, which is 
Do you see how, do you see how this can be somewhat appealing? Because there are grains of truth there. But what he ended up doing is he built a fence around the law, just like they did in the um, in, in um, Jesus' time, where um, the, 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 the Pharisees said, this is wrong, so we will stay so far away from that that they fenced off um, and uh, avoided all things that even approached being wrong. And this has done great damage. I know people who were damaged by the purity movement. People who were told for years and years and years Sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. And then they got married, and they couldn't flip the switch. And it was very hard to, to build intimacy because they had built up in their minds this idea of, of, of bad, 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 bad. Ah, oh, it's good now. That was just a hard switch to flip. But the other thing that was very difficult was that those people who did fail, there was a very, very non-gospel teaching here, is that somehow those people who, who failed and, and who sinned um, who had sexual sin, that they were marked forever by this. That's what purity culture said, is that they were defined by this. And of course, um, the, the Bible teaches that we are separated from our sin as far as the East is from the West, and that those things don't define us. So what Joshua Harris argued was that the way to avoid sin was to avoid intimacy, that we shouldn't be practicing intimacy and putting ourselves in positions that leave us vulnerable to sin. We absolutely should be careful. So um, it's been difficult to find a middle ground on this because he said, um, we want to avoid the bad. And so he finds himself over here. And so we've had a hard time um, talking about that middle ground. Um, and we ought to be careful about putting ourselves in situations where we would be tempted. But we also want to uh, push back against this purity culture that has damaged so many people. Uh, Paul addresses this in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, so this idea that physical pleasure is, is bad, again, this, was a, this happened in, in the first century. Um, someone in the city of Corinth um, asked Paul, they said, so you're saying it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? And Paul says, no, it's not sex that's bad. It's the way that you're using it that's bad. He does concede that he actually wishes, now this is Paul's wishes, he says, you know, I really wish for all of you to remain single as I am, because he had an urgency in missions that he's like, we want the whole world to hear the gospel, to hear the good news, and to be welcomed into God's kingdom. But um, he said, so like, really, it'd be ideal if everyone just committed their life to that, like I do. But he said, if you can't exercise self-control, you, you should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He doesn't say that passion is bad, but he says if this burning passion is something you can't control, then by all means, marry. Bring this up as just an example of God's good gift. This is not an all-encompassing uh, teaching. Um, like I said, there's, it's hard to get to the nuance of this. Um, God, God loves marriage. And um, if you don't need to feel guilty about seeking marriage. Um, God can use you and your gifts within the confines of marriage. Passion isn't bad, physical pleasure isn't bad, engaging it outside of the confines of marriage is bad. All this is to say that this purity movement caused tremendous damage. Um, what started as a zealous movement to protect people um, ended up harming a great deal of people. So I wanna be clear about this, that's why I've been so deliberate, that's why we're still on the first verse of this reading, um, because there's just a lot to, to unpack. Um, let's return to the reading. 
Paul says to put away these things, put these things to death, including sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So just a word about covetousness. Do you remember our theme of the day? Highlighted in the, in the collect. All things come from God. Our salvation comes from God. Our progress on the journey towards sanctification. All things come from God. And this is a hard teaching in America today because we are bootstrap people um, who like to control our own destiny. Um, we believe that we have earned all that we have by the sweat of our brow. And I, I don't want to disparage all of our hard work. But the Bible's clear teaching is that, that all things come from God. Um, the Bible loves, loves to teach about the good, thing, good parts of work. But as Christians, we believe that all things, our strength, our health, our energy, our intellect, our work ethic, all those things come from God. All those things. And one thing that I've realized as I've gotten older is just how precious life is. That, that life can be taken away, that health can be taken away at any moment, and that all things are, are by the grace of God. And so like the reading from Luke, um, the, the, the man who, who trusted in his possessions, um, for those of you who know farmers, um, all that could be taken away in a hailstorm or, or a, a little bit of rain. This man who trusted in his barns, um, your wealth is, is only going to do so much for you. Being born in a, in a, all we have is a gift from God. Um, just being here is, is in, in a way, winning the, the genetic lottery. We could have been born anywhere in the world, in a, in a place without antibiotics, um, in a place without regular food. Um, and those, all those things are a gift to us. And so, e even growing up in America, growing up in a two-parent household, that is a, is a gift from God. So anyway, um, Paul teaches that covetousness is idolatry. And not many of ourselves see, not many of us see ourselves as idolaters. But we are probably more prone to covetousness than we would like to admit. We go on social media and we see the vacations that our friends take. And we're like, I didn't get to do that. I didn't get to go kite surfing in Cabo. How are they able to afford that? Or we see the car that our friend is driving. Or maybe not our friend, you know, maybe just another person. Like, man, like, how, how do they afford that? Or you see um, the brand of clothes that someone's wearing, and you look at them, and you kind of resent that. You're like, oh, you think you're kind of fancy, huh? Because I suffer for Jesus. I wear thrift shop clothes. Paul's, and, and Paul's saying, no, 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 don't be idolaters. This is idolatry, this covetousness. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And then he makes a big point. Um, he says in verse 7, he says, In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul is contrasting the old self with the new self. The old self was the person that we were before we were converted, before we met Jesus, before Jesus changed our life. 
And he says, once you live this way, but now you must put this old self away. It's not that it's impossible for Christians to live this way. It's that it doesn't make any sense. You've been invited into God's kingdom and given a place at his table. He's placed his royal robes upon you and placed the feast before you. Don't return to your old life of eating old, cold SpaghettiOs and wearing rags. You, your life looks different now. You are God's heir with all the rights and privileges associated with that. Your life is different. Don't go back to your old life, as tempting as that may be. As tempting as it is to, to look at other people's purchases and say, ah, but they don't tithe. I do. And it's tempting. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to write this, right? It's not automatic that we put these things away. He's saying, stay strong. And you're not on your own. Stay strong in Christ. And he concludes the first half of this passage saying, here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Christ is all and in all. We have five values as a church, and the first one is about our identity in Christ, that in Christ we find our identity. Our identity isn't found in our ethnicity or our income bracket. Outside of the church, you may be chairman of the board or you may be nobody. But in here, you are God's treasure. We are not defined by our sexual sins. We are not defined by our covetousness. We are defined by Christ and in him alone. There is no pride except in Christ alone. There is no shame. You may feel inadequate in your job or in your standing before God. But in him, you are loved. You are his. You are his child. You belong to him, and he laid down his life for you. We don't have a hierarchy before Christ. When you come forward as a repentant sinner, which is what we all are, we are repentant sinners, you come forward as Christ's own. You are his. You have all the benefits of being his heir, the heir of a king. So I realize that I've only preached the first half of this passage. Last week I told you that if you don't have a Bible reading plan, that um, that Last week I said, read Colossians. It's only four chapters. Um, read a chapter a day and then read it again during the second half of the week. Um, so, so maybe I'll say, uh, I'll say this. Since I didn't preach in the second half, focus on that this week, the rest of the week, um, because I don't want to be here another 20 minutes. Um, well, actually, I'll be honest, I do. Uh, but you don't want me to be here another 20 minutes. Um, put your minds on the exhortations of Paul to put on these things. But remember this caveat that we do not achieve this by our own strength. It is God who gives us the strength. Our translation tells us to put off these vices, but a better translation would be to strip off. One of the best illustrations I know of this comes from C.S. Lewis in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but there was a young man in that book named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And I think the first line of the book was Eustace Clarence Scrub, like he was a young boy who deserved that name, something to that effect. That he was a very unpleasant young man who complained about everything. And um, this, he, he finds himself on this ship sailing uh, in the midst of these islands. And they end up landing on an island. And he, being the covetousness, greedy uh, young man that he is, he finds a dragon's hoard 
and he puts on this bracelet and he falls asleep on it, thinking dragonish thoughts. And when he wakes up, he finds out that he is a dragon. And just like sin is so attractive to us as he put on this bracelet, it seems so shiny and great. That bracelet was painful as he was a dragon now, much larger, and it just cut off his circulation just as sin kills us. And um, over the days uh, and weeks as he was a dragon, his heart changed. And he became less dragonish. And he actually became helpful. He somehow communicated to the, the crew of this ship that he was Eustace, that this dragon was not a, just a dragon, but it was Eustace. Um, hey, guys, it's me. Uh, he couldn't talk, but he indicated to them that it was Eustace. And he was very helpful, and he helped them rebuild their ship. But now it was time uh, for the ship to leave, and they, they were like, what do, you know, what do we do? His heart changed, but externally he was still a dragon. And here's where the Christ figure comes in, the lion named Aslan, who is the Christ figure here. And at this point I'll read to you from the book. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. And the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. It goes on in beautiful language to express the transformation culminating in Aslan tossing Eustace into a pool of water, symbolizing baptism and unity with Christ, that in our baptism we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's a beautiful illustration of our state. Apart from Christ, we are sinners in Christ. We are made holy, and through his power, we can put off the old and put on the new.